saw an airplane hit the tower. TV was obviously on, and I, I used to fly myself. And I said, well, there's one terrible pilot. And I saw an airplane hit the tower. TV was obviously on, and I, I used to fly myself. And I said, well, there's one terrible pilot. 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 It's kind of like, you know, Orwell's 1984 when, you know, these extreme lies are out there and it, they're fairly widely accepted. All right, guys, welcome back to the America show. We got a, a great show lined up. We're going to be talking with Dr. Kevin Barrett about some false flag action a little bit later. Uh, how's it going, Graham? Hey, buddy, I'm doing good. I'm happy to have our... Our Kiwi ambassador of Grimerica from uh, New Zealand on the line with us and in this new, intro. And our new, the Facebook face of Grimerica. <laughs> Welcome, Jared. G'day. How are we? Welcome back to the Igloo. We're good. We're good. It's night here. It's our, it's yeah, last night. We're in last night. Almost I'm bedtime. in the future. You're in the future. Or we're yeah. in the past. I've already gotten over the hump. Oh, yeah, Wednesday, man. Morning. Oh, right. Yeah, you're already there. Yeah. Why are you Some sending me these pictures of you and your this, cat? <laughs> Does that mean you've already got Chives like hump day pictures on your phone? Yep. And they've already changed the meme. It's been like gone through so many different names and yeah, oh, it's wow. there. Chive. I haven't checked out the Chive in fucking months. Probably oh, probably almost a year. I just got I used to really like that daily. It has the day. I used to like the daily morning off awesomeness and the Rand yeah, yeah yeah the randomness and shit the best. I don't have time for that shit anymore. So what's new, guys? Oh, we got we got uh, we're booked uh, solid till like mid uh, almost mid April now. So we're yeah we're feeling pretty good. It's good. That's awesome. Been working hard. Yeah, it's been coming together. Yeah, we got it laid out for a little bit. We're moving studio here in a couple of weeks. So this is about your third move now. Uh, no, we, Second? the last time we just moved across the room. We just, <laughs> it still counts. Yeah. Yeah. You got to uh, rearrange. Yeah, unplug, exactly. Plug we've been upgrading consistently. All that we keep awesome. getting new gear. We have to implement it. And then we keep, seem to keep demanding more space. So Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> we did go and see a 3D printer the other day. You want to talk about that, Darren? Yeah, that was a cool little uh, little thing. A friend of mine is uh, is is uh, is good good friends are connected with some people that do like a mold mold shop. I guess they got all kinds of crazy molds there for like melt crates and stuff. But they also do a lot of cool three D printer stuff. Yeah, and we're not talking just a little three D printer. Like this is pretty industrial style three D printer. Yeah, it was and sweet. you know on the uh, Facebook page, there is a picture of one of the cartridges for you to examine. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did put it on the Facebook page. A $1,000 3D printer. Well, I guess you wouldn't call it ink. How, how much does that create? Like, I mean, roughly speaking, how, how big is that thing? Well, that would, that would probably make, uh, let's say, 
That would probably make twenty like, moais. Like no, that would size make of a big coffee mug. Yeah, that would probably make twenty moais. Twenty, yeah, twenty moais the size of a big coffee mug. So fifty bucks a piece. Wow, and that's that's the raw product. So you, you're talking like if somebody's going to sell that going forward, you're still saying that three um, D printing is still in the infant stage where it's incredibly expensive to make something. Yeah, well, really, it's not that it's not near as expensive as, as I thought it was going to be. The real expense is getting the three D drawing, the drawing into a three D, three D model like with software. Yeah, you need yeah. to render it with software that the printer understands, and that's where the real cost is. I think is like it was over a thousand dollars to get that done. But once <laughs> that's done, I think you know he said we could print them anywhere from. Depends on what size we want to print them. Once we do it with their, it's easily scalable and we'll be able to kind of print on demand. But for one of okay. things or for like a test piece, like in a manufacturing plant, like these guys do, you know, production rolls of like thousands and millions of plastic pieces of this thing or that thing through injection molding or die casting or whatever. So for, for initial things, it's cheaper to actually do a 3D printer, right? It's cheaper to draw something up in 3D, print one out, than make a, a cast or a mold to try something out. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, like, if we had a mold built for the Moai, we'd be spending like probably ten or $15,000 yeah. to make a little trinket to sell on the website. Wow. Whereas this way... Basically, you print them as you want them. We don't get stuck with an attic full of moais. People order yeah. them as they want it, and it comes out of a hot off, hot off a 3D printer. Not to sound too much like a, a, a grown-up kid, but I am a grown-up kid. Um, when you see, like I've watched a documentary on the, the Lego factory, and you look at the different, like the injection molding that they do for Lego, for instance, yeah. you sort of think, you know, that's pretty straightforward. They're just printing out a couple of pieces, but each one of those molds themselves... You know, they're twenty, thirty thousand dollars for this this piece of metal. You know, just to pump it through. Something yeah, they're stupid. all they're all cool. They've got water lines in them, so you can yeah. cool the stuff quick enough. It's crazy. Yeah. Have you seen you that the milk the mold for the fucking milk crate was worth a hundred grand or something like that? Yeah, and it's huge. It's the size of a room for a milk. Crate. Yeah. Have you seen that one where they can? Um, it's almost like a big tank of liquid, and they can they line up the lasers underneath it which then print within the the liquid so to speak have you seen those things before no it's a type of 3d printing but it's in in a medium wow underwater 3d printing sort of sort of it's like a you know you imagine just like the square tank it's full of uh, like a cube it's full of some sort of a liquid and when the the lasers line up on each other it hardens around it and they can just pretty much spit out whatever they want wow that's crazy it's it's more like a fucking printer than you'd ever imagine like we were in there and there was making a couple little brackets or something and it was mm. like just like a printer would going over and just adding layers of plastic and it can it could print movable parts on top like they they've printed it out of that printer uh an adjustable wrench we call them monkey wrenches here mm. With the little fucking twist thing to move the jaw yep. up and you, down. You probably call them monkey spanners over there or something. Uh, we call it a wrench. A thumb we don't, give, we don't give it a title before the title. We just call it a wrench. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> I know in Newfoundland they call it a thumb wrench, a tumb wrench. <laughs> anyway, you know the style I'm talking about with the adjustable jaw. Yeah, they they yeah, print got, that yeah. out, and it comes out 100% working. And I think uh, each layer is like seventh of a thousandth of an inch 
thick. So it's probably like, I think a human hair is somewhere around four thou. So that's like 10% the size of a human hair. Wow. The whole inch thing still gets me there. It's oh, like right. you, yeah, you, yeah, you're yeah, going right. in, in fractions of a fraction of a fraction. Why don't you just say like half a millimeter done? Well, it would be well, three microns. I think though. seven mm. microns is somewhere in there. I'm, I can't remember. You're probably now. talking like like ten thou of an inch is going to be. Don't even go there. 25. Uh, uh, ten thou uh, to 25. You're going to say four hundredth of a millimeter. Either a fortieth of a millimeter no, or four hundredth of a millimeter. You need down a micron. Okay, uh, microns. Isn't a piece of tinfoil? A piece of tinfoil is about 12 microns, apparently. Okay. Yeah, we'll settle on that then. Yeah, that's good. Good. Settled. We should take a minute and welcome our new listeners, new country, number 76 in our global takeover. (laughs) Um, Chile. That's a peaceful takeover, by the way. A peaceful takeover. Yeah, we're all cool. Don't make it sound all aggressive. Well, it's It's, it's a revolution. aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, revolution. revolution, bitches. Um, yeah, welcome, Chile. So uh, that brings us a little step closer to taking over South America. Chile. Welcome, Chile. Welcome aboard. Mm. I see they've see downloaded a few around. episodes right off the bat, so I always like to see when a new country comes in and they get hooked on our bullshit. Oh, it's um, good bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Which reminds uh, to our Canadian listeners, if you have any friends in the Northwest Territories, you uh, should tell them to download at least one episode just so we can complete the takeover of our own country. <laughs> we were just telling Jared about that. And he's like, so what's the place called? And we said, oh, it's the Northwest Territories. He's like, what's the, what's the name? What's it called, man? Uh, Northwest Territories. Yeah. Well, what do you call it then, Northwest Territories? So its name is Northwest Territories. We snuck into none of it, which I'm pretty sure is fucking like nothing but ice and fucking... Not like the igloo that we podcast out of. But like fucking Northwest Territories has cities and shit. I'm surprised. Anyway, tell someone. I'll have none of you know, We sl- could just meditate on it and it would happen. I've slept in an igloo before. Have My you? own. Built it. Yeah, Abraham. I'm sleeping really, in eh? the igloo tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Where was that? <laughs> That wasn't. Was that in New Zealand? Antarctica, I bet. Antarctica. Oh, very cool. We built it ourselves and slept in it, and it was daylight the whole time. Wow. Was it warm? Was there any any sunshine through the cracks of the igloo? Uh, (laughs) Did you have a fire and shit? Like a good one with a hole in the top and the fire in the middle and shit? No, this is real basic. You just pile up all your backpacks, put a tarpaulin over it. Dig a trench around it, throw the snow on top, and then dig out the tarpaulin, and that was it. But oh. shitty igloo. Yeah, it wasn't the blocks. I was I was looking forward to you know building the blocks like Shamu and then putting them all and stacking them up and and you know doing some engineering. But it was pretty basic. At the blocks, but it worked and it was cool. Yeah, melt them together with fire sticks. Well, the the next morning the the whole ceiling was like a perfect dome, like it had melted and set. It was cool. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with the 3D printing anyway. It's definitely something we're considering for down the road, maybe having uh, 3D printed Moai. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could 3D print a, um, an igloo. Like maybe yeah. they should move because it's cheaper to use water than that $1,000 stuff and just well, we'll, have a freezer we'll, printer. We'll sucker them in with the Moais <laughs> and then we'll start getting accessories. Yeah. We do we an ice cube tray. Moais. You yeah, got to get exactly. the Moai and igloo. 
How about an ice cube tray with little mini igloos? Then we'll start marketing to kids. But it just puts the toys. I will get out of the podcast game altogether and just sell stone Moai toys. Money Bomb, I guess uh, we're going to start sort of getting the ball rolling on the Money Bomb plan. We'll start accepting. We Actually, we just the main thing is we just want some postcards. So if you send us a postcard, we will uh, throw throw you in the... Whenever we start the Money Bomb, you'll be in the uh, in the draw. Yeah, the THC, the Higher Side Chats, their Money Bomb is going really good. So... This month, I think they've got over seven, eight hundred dollars in donations. So half of that is going to go to a lucky listener. Um, so we want to do the same thing eventually. So we're thinking uh, for now, if you send a postcard, we will make sure that you get in the first money bomb whenever that does happen. Right, Darren? Yeah, he's. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and of buddy. course, you can send the postcards oh. to the Grimerica Show, PO Box. One six zero three three eight fifteen seventeenth Avenue Southwest Calgary Alberta Canada. Yeah, and get this: we have a postal code, not a zip code, and it's T two T five H seven. There you go, and that's where you can send my thirty uh, third birthday gifts as well. Thirty third? That's a yeah. I know. I was thinking that's fucked up. Are you only thirty three? Yeah, I'm turning thirty three. When is that like a magic year or something? When is that? On the tenth of only if you're a Freemason. Yeah. My grandpa was a Freemason. Really? 33? Yeah. Huh. And my uncle. Really? Get your uncle on the show. Uh, he passed away years ago. Get a Ouija board. Uh, Ouija boards are bad news, man. No, I'd rather use a medium. Yeah. yeah. You spoke to a well, medium the other day. Did you? How'd that you go? Did. Chris Conway. Oh, yeah. oh, we did, yeah. Well, it was boat. kind of a rough conversation. It was like there was like a fucking ten second delay in between us and them, and the and getting, we got a bit of gold out of there, but and getting Scotty and John to shut up for a bit so Chris could talk was a challenge. <clears throat> it was a good show, though. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Glad, glad to hear. Yeah, apologize if the music was a little bit much for some people, but uh, some things fit too good to uh, to pass. Too good to pass up. So yeah, send nice. the postcards. We do. We love to see the postcards, um, and then maybe we'll we'll pick a day here in the next over the next few shows and and get this thing fired up. Yeah, thanks to THC for coming up with the uh, money bomb idea. So I got a new segment for you guys. I want to do every week. Every week. Every week. <laughs> it, otherwise, well, it wouldn't be a single, segment. Every single. Every week. single yeah. individual week. Yeah, it's a short, really short segment. Far away. Let's see how okay. it goes first so, week. Let's start with one week. Okay, so it's uh, what it's going to be is every week I'm going to read a profound quote about UFOs. And that's it? That's it. <laughs> that's a segment? Yeah. Nothing Nothing to do with cats? Nothing well, maybe. All these cat can... pictures you've been texting me. Have you <laughs> stunk one up to your cat? <laughs> maybe I'll put these in the show notes. <laughs> let's, let's leave that for another time. So now I can't even okay. read the quote because you got me laughing. So. Okay, no, okay I'm going to start off. So, okay, serious mode. Now, serious mode. I can't um, back all these up, but I have uh, an old list of a whole schwack of quotes here, so I want to read one every week. So the first one is, uh, maybe we need a jingle for it or something like that. Drum roll. So the first one is, it is time for the truth to be brought out in open congressional hearings. Behind the scenes, high-ranking Air Force officers are soberly concerned about the UFOs. But through official secrecy and ridicule, 
Many citizens are led to believe the unknown flying objects are nonsense. And that is from Admiral Helen Cotter, the first director of the CIA from 1947 to 1950. And that was on February 27th, 1960. Hey, I like it. I got a better idea. Let's no, no. let's do. The, is that the end of the quote? No. Well, I was, I was going to do for the first week. I was going to do two. Oh. Okay. Is that okay? It's, yeah. it's a big week. <laughs> it's a big week. I got a lot to yeah, choose from it's here. It's the first week. So what if the next time we 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 both have a copy of the quotes and we try and sneak quotes into regular conversation and see if we can pick out when the other person is using a quote? Oh my god. Sounds That's really crazy. complicated. Yeah, it does sound a little complicated. Okay, here we go. The type of UFO reports that are most intriguing are close-range sightings of machine-like objects of unconventional nature and unconventional performance characteristics, seen at low altitudes and sometimes even on the ground. The general public is entirely unaware of the large number of such reports that are coming from credible witnesses. When one starts searching for such cases, their number are quite astonishing. Also, such sightings appear to be occurring all over the globe. Hearings before the Committee on Science and Astronautics, U.S. House of Representatives, July 29, 1968. That was from Dr. James E. MacDonald, Senior Physicist at the Institute of Atmospheric Physics at the University of Arizona. Beautiful. Thanks, buddy. What do you well, think? Well done. Okay. What I do you think, Jared? Like Is that a go? Sneaking quotes into this yeah. combo. So, yeah, I think we'll have like think... buzzers or something that are like, that was a quote. I think you need better intro music, though. Okay. Something like the X Files. Maybe we'll just use oh. one from the X Files. Something on a theremin. Oh, a theremin. Yeah, get a theremin involved. What's a theremin? I wanna, you know about. what I want to get? You know what I fucking want to get one day is a didgeridoo. I just uh, I just saw one. Uh, I was at one. Not too long at ago. a didgeridoo. <laughs> at one. <laughs> I was at a concert called the Heart Resonance. Did I talk about that on the show? And I don't it was think so. uh, all these ancient instruments and stuff like that. Oh yeah, we kind of touched yeah. on that. I think. Yeah, yeah I want. I've got a recording of it. I could. I want to get me a didgeridoo, man. Okay, I'm going to take you to this place where they'll have them. Okay. No, I think they're pretty expensive. I don't think I'm going to get one like right away. It's just on my like list of things to get one day and learn how to play. Maybe I could get one over here, like from Aussie. Get it over here and send it over to you because it's closer, you know. Could you Is just get one out of the bush? Or... Yeah, they're Australian. Mm. So I'd say a neighbor. I wonder if they're cheaper over there. than. Yeah, over they're here. probably cheaper over there, eh? Or I could use the Amazon portal and uh, get it shipped to you. Using right. my own address from there. Uh, they'll be they'll be onto that in no time. Those motherfuckers. Those Amazon. Those smart cookies. <laughs> no, they're gonna fucking sue me one of these days. Is what's gonna happen? But for now, keep rocking the the Grimerica Amazon portal. Be on my credit card. I'm a Kiwi. Yeah, it might work. that. We can look into it. Seen it as a gift, you know. Did we talk about the passport? Uh, oh, we did. We talked yeah, about that. Yeah, I think that we talked. Yeah, you did. Yeah. What about the solar flare today? Anybody get into that? Oh, was no. when I was looking at fucking solar solar lenses for my telescope. Can They're you like grab that book? They're like two hundred bucks, and I can fucking put a solar lens on it so I can look on the sun with my telescope. That'd be pretty cool, I think. Well, they had a solar flare today. It was like 
moving out at 7.1 kilometers an hour. Who's they? NASA. You know, those guys. They had a solar flare? Well, there was a a solar ejection today. Um, It is Wednesday, though, so you guys are probably catching up. Hasn't hasn't happened here yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A massive coronal ejection, and, um, yeah, it's moving through space at about 2,000 kilometers a second. So it already missed us. Yeah, well, it was going the other way, so it's all right. Beauty. Dodged another one. No, I just brought a book over here uh, by Robert Schock, and it's called oh. uh, Forgotten Civilization, and it's the role of solar outbursts in our past and future. So I just heard him talking on a on Jim Harold's podcast, actually, um, who we talked to tonight, and his he was talking about how the solar outbursts affected uh, the civilization, like after the Ice Age. There, yeah, crazy shit. And he talked about the Carenting event too. I was mm. just listening to the uh, the higher side chats from a couple weeks ago when they were talking about the crustal displacement and shit like that. Yeah, that was a I good love show. that shit. Mm. I love that was that. cool. That was very cool. That's my favorite. Things shit. like moving around the outside that's still moving. It's not. It's not um, plate tectonics. It's just the whole shebang moving. Yeah. Earth crust displacement theory. I think they call it. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It's cool. So uh, this solar outburst. Uh, <clears throat> is it seriously going the other way? Or are you just kidding? Yes, me? it is. Is it no, really? No, no. They, it they, is, they, it they, actually they goes it. one way? How do they see it this... if it's going the other way? Oh, just How do they catch link? it? How do they catch up to it? They've got someone up there having a look, and um, they just checked it out and saw it, and this thing went, and it just went nuts. Do Massive they... thing. Really? Yeah. Do they know how... Um... That compares to biggest the Carantine event, year. if it came this way? Oh, it's just the biggest of the year? Oh, it's the biggest of 2014, and we're only two months in. Well, it's um, on their scale, I don't know what it really means, but it's a massive X4.9 class solar flare. It's called AR1990, and um, NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory captured it in high def, and... Yeah, there it is. I just sent it through to you. Wow. That's cool in the different colors and shit. See, that's the shit I want to see on my telescope. I'll see the Carrington event coming in real time. Be too hey, late, can bro. we have one more quote, Graham? About Come what? On. UFOs. Really? Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you guys are asking me for another one here. It's your debut. Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, okay, I'll just pick one randomly here. Headquarters... <laughs> <laughs> I do so <laughs> Headquarters wouldn't let us go after it, and we played around a little bit. We got to watching how it made 90 degree turns at its high speed and everything. We knew it wasn't a missile of any type, so then we confirmed it with a radar control station, and they kept following it. And then it crashed somewhere off between Texas and the Mexico border. And that's from Colonel Robert Willingham, U.S. Air Force, from a sworn affidavit in the 1970s when discussing a sighting of a UFO while he was navigating an F-94 jet on September 6, 1950. That was fucking awesome. Beautiful. That was like, you know, you were just taken back, you know, like in a movie when they go back to a dream time sort of scene, and, you know, you're going back in history. That was awesome. <laughs> 
You should do this every week. Yeah, well, that's that's the segment. Yeah, except I'll find a cooler effect. Yeah, no, let's, let's <laughs> lose the effects. We'll find a cool effect. That sounds super awesome. We can take this. We can elevate it. Really take it to the... Levitate it? Elevate it. Ele- Use a flanger. Elevate the levitate. <clears throat> Hey, the other one too today is um, Bitcoin. There's some shit going on with Bitcoin today. Hey, I, I heard something about that. I didn't hear much. Maybe you, Matt, did you tell me something about it? Yeah, um, something about Mount Fox or something like that, where it's just lost a huge amount of money on the Bitcoin. I don't know enough about this sort of stuff to really get into it. Bitcoin but, is fucked. Yeah, it is weird. You know, all these people like, uh, it, it is a bit weird for me. It's it's virtual money. I don't understand it enough. But by the sounds of it, there's been a big hole found in it today. Sounds like it. I it always seemed kind of scammy to me, just like Mars One. A big hole found in it, like a gap in the in a theory, kind of, or a gap in the principle. Well, someone's just disappeared. A big chunk of it's disappeared. Oh wow. Bitcoin heist. Somebody robbed the Bitcoin bank. Something like that. Or, or there's there's some page that's just disappeared. Mount Gox. Sorry, it was Fox, but Gox has um, disappeared somewhere. Hmm. Which, yeah. I, I mean, like I say, I don't know enough about it to to get too far into it, but it's just gone. Bitcoin's like AOL. And then Google's going to come along and take over the planet. Fair enough. There's Maybe a lot Google. of that talk in fucking that Estoy book. Really? All kinds of that. Really? Which book? Uh, that's uh, Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Destruction by Daniel Estelin. So get this. I'm, I'm reading. Darren, Darren's got me this book here. It just came in today. And uh, <clears throat> I'm like, he's an award in, award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author of the true story of the Bilderberger Group. And I'm Bilderberger <laughs> Group? What is that, a fast food chain? I mean, the Bilderberger Group. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I thought that sounds awfully familiar. And I look at my phone, and I've actually got the audiobook. I'm a couple hours into the audiobook. I've, I've had it in my phone for quite a while. But, uh, yeah, so I've already been listening to Daniel without even knowing it. Oh, it looks like nice. one of these Bitcoin... Bitcoin exchange just disappeared with 365 million. Look, this guy's holding a sign that says Mount Gox, where's my money? Yeah, that's what came up today. Wow. That's not good for business. It's not a surprise, though. No, it's not a surprise. That's not good for Bitcoin. That, what, I wonder what that did to the fucking exchange of Bitcoin. Well, well it, it's only going to affect Bitcoin, though. You know apparently. that you know that there's going to be a conspiracy behind who, you know, how this happened, right? Of course, yeah. there's a conspiracy behind Bitcoin. Maybe it was the no, fucking, but I mean about maybe the it was the fucking Colonel from KFC. <laughs> <laughs> that beady eyed. <laughs> <laughs> how did how the hell did you make that connection? Oh, it's from a Austin Austin Powers. I was gonna say, have you ever seen uh, "So I Married an Axe Murderer"? Yeah, yeah. He talks about the the Illuminati. 
but he calls it the uh, something else. I think we've played it on the podcast. Builder Burgers? Yeah. No, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> I said it because you just said Builder Burger. So I said maybe it was the KFC guy. <laughs> what a burger. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, it's the Builder Burger group, of course. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a... That's what that transhumanism is. It's just starts. It goes from like Bilderberg shit right into swarms into transhumanism and us turning into slave robots, or just fucking memory for fucking Google's whatever mainframe in Idaho. Yeah, in a mainframe in Idaho or Ohio mm-hmm. or wherever the mainframe is. Probably everywhere. It's wherever the people are. I feel like. You're probably in the mainframe right now. I am. How can you tell? He just got. He just kind of glazed over I've there. I got that look. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually trying to type notes at the same time here. I think that uh, I actually you know, on that note. I think that uh, about wraps it. Actually, no. We should uh, before we go. We should. Uh, Talk about uh, Dr. Kevin Barrett coming up. We haven't even uh, touched on that yet. We should touch on that a bit. Um, of course, I'm pretty sure he, he he was made famous. Or not, I guess not made famous, but he was. his life took a drastic turn and it was all started with 9-11. But uh, we get into a lot more than that and false flag operations and U.S. military and all sorts of fun stuff. Have you looked into that at all jared oh jared's gone jared's gone (laughs) anyways yeah that's a good thing about video we could see that he's left it's it was kind of a bit a bit freaky because it's a little a little out of our element this whole 9-11 thing um but it was it was uh it was great to chat with kevin and and I'm, i'm glad we did it and maybe we can explore more of these kind of deeper conspiracies yeah exactly you can't be uh can't be scared to listen to listen to them all, is in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Everyone gets a stage in Grand America. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Darren, and we'll uh, get on with this chat. Have you ever heard of uh, Kevin Barrett, Jared? Have you listened to much of his stuff? Or yeah, in the circles, I've been interested in nine eleven stuff for a long time, and um, yeah, uh, to me anyway, the the Pentagon thing has got to be the biggest standout to, you know, what went on there. There's so many holes in that story. And then, well, yeah, and then he was talking about, he starts, the, uh, the, we'll, we'll let the interview speak for itself. It's definitely, the, there's all kinds of holes. And I, it's kind of ironic because I'd actually just watched uh, Loose Change Loose Change right before, actually, it was one of our, his Twitter names, Terrence McKenna or something. Terrence McKenna, I think, tweeted me that as one of our guest suggestions. So I emailed him mm. and he said yes right away. But it was kind of ironic. It was right after, like, two days after I watched Loose Change. Oh, I see what you mean. You, you, you manifested it. That was the first it. time I ever seen Loose Change. Yeah, you manifested it. But, the, yeah, that, that's the first thing I ever saw on 9-11 was Loose Change. And um, I think that is, for a lot of people, that is one of the more prolific uh, documentaries out there. It's so uh, slow going, though. It's like, yeah. Well, uh, you probably would have seen like the third or fourth version of it, um, but right off the bat, like I remember seeing it when it was sort of first at first past the post, and um, yeah, it, it was enough to open my eyes. What do you think? So you think U.S. government? 
You don't no, I think like it's you, oh, maybe we should. Yeah, that's a bad way to say that. Probably. Hello, we just got dropped here. Just dog. call it the Bilderbergers or the Illuminati or something. Yeah. Or Burger King or yeah, whatever. KFC. Um, oh, I think it's deeper. I think it goes way back. Um, the elites more powerful. Than, maybe it's the aliens. There's there's some sort of Israeli connection there. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he goes into that. I don't know. I mean, it's it's all I know is what I saw on that day, and what they're trying to say it was is they don't add up. That's just my opinion, apparently. Well, I know a lot of people share that opinion with you. I'm still kind of on the fence of exactly who pulled it off, but uh, it definitely doesn't seem like with all the you hear the pilots talking <clears throat> about how. They think how it would be difficult for one plane to pull it off, let alone two in a row. Two out of two is almost impossible. And again, it goes back to the Pentagon. Like for one of those aircraft to hit that building at the um, the angle of approach that it did, without you know belly flopping onto the the front lawn there. You know, there's so much about it without no recognition of a tail plane, no recognition of any piece of of like aeronautical equipment, whatever. For me, it's about the uh, Building 7, like how that looks like a controlled demolition. And then also, if you look at all the tiny little bullet points together, like if one of, one of them on its own might not mean a conspiracy, but when you look at all the little things like the insurance and the maintenance that was being done, and the, all those, you know, that security was, what's his name, his brother's company. I mean, there's mm, all Jib, these things. Jib like Jibadar. if you just add them all up, like the... It's just, yeah, it's too Something's going to miss. Yeah, just simple stuff. You know, the buildings were full of asbestos and it was going to cost them millions to, to get it out and replace it and do something else with it, whatever. You know, Silverstein getting insurance yeah. just before it all happened. Yeah, and people then being claiming, told not to go in there. Yeah, then claiming that it was two separate incidents and trying to get double the amount of insurance <laughs> back from it. I think he even won that. Probably did. I, you thought, know, I, th I think you well, won. I he, could be wrong. Well, maybe the Illuminati did one, someone. and maybe Osama did the other one. Did he even? I doubt it. That's, did he even have anything to do with it? He was just a scapegoat. Yeah. He's dead in the ocean now. So. Apparently, Allegedly. you know, we're not going to know because there's no um, no proof of that. It just sort of happened one day, and whoop, there you go. Oop. Don't look over here. No photos, though, you know, and we've got to stick to the um, religious rites of what happened. Well, on that note, I think we'll let uh, Dr. Dr. Barrett take it from there. He definitely does it quite eloquently. Um, so we'd like to thank you for joining us, Jared. Graham, if you got nothing else, I think we'll, uh, we'll take a quick break here and then jam into our uh, interview with Dr. Kevin Barrett.
Okay, guys, with us in Grimerica tonight, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Barrett about, uh, among other things, uh, some 9-11 stuff and about his radio program, uh, Truth Jihad Radio. Uh, but first, as always, how's it going tonight, Graham? Hey, Darren, I'm doing pretty good, man. Good to be here. We have, uh, like you mentioned, we have Dr. Kevin Barrett here. He's got his, uh, his radio show, Truth Jihad Radio. He's got his doctorate in uh, African languages. And he's also uh, recently the uh, editor at Veterans Today and an op-ed writer at Press TV. And you've seen Kevin all over YouTube. He's uh, been on all kinds of uh, mainstream TV and radio shows. So it's uh, really good to, to have you on tonight, Kevin. Welcome to Grey America. Well, it's good to be with you, uh, Darren and Graham. So um, what is, I guess I want to start with kind of what's new um, with you. Uh, there's a lot of content out there. Um, a lot of it goes back to like the mid 2000s. So what's the latest and greatest going on? Well, uh, I guess I'm kind of stuck now, you know, instead of devoting my life to getting tenure and then writing uh, erudite tomes on Moroccan Sufism, yeah. you know, comparing the miraculous, you know, legends and happenings of the Middle Ages to the uh, bizarre personal experience narratives of today and, and meditating on Islamic uh, spirituality in Morocco, which was kind of my original career plan. Um, I've now found a niche as uh, maybe the world's leading Muslim conspiracy op-ed writer and broadcaster. Uh, and so I, I'm, you know, one thing I really like to work at is to try to write, you know, the, the world's greatest op-eds, you know, and they, which isn't that tough of a field to be competing, really. I mean, the, if you read stuff in the New York Times and the Washington Post, much less your local paper, I mean, <laughs> there's hardly anything that's any good. And, you know, Paul Craig Roberts writes pretty good rants these days. He used to write for the Wall Street Journal, but then, you know, he got a little too serious when he got pissed off about 9-11. And so, you know, he's, he's stuck in the same alternative fields I am. So my aim now is to write op-eds that are, you know, even better than those of Paul Craig Roberts and, and Gordon Duff, you know, my, my friend at Veterans Today and, and people like that. And I think I'm doing pretty well at combining, you know, good stuff with popular stuff. You know, I'm getting a lot of reads at uh, Press TV, which is the Iranian language English media outlet. Um, so I'm just, uh, you know, trying to get better and better at this op-ed writing thing and, and then put out more and more interesting radio shows like you guys are doing. Well, we try anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so well, if you tell invited me, you must be good. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. So, um, how about your truth jihad radio? Then you, you do that, um, how often and, and what do you guys basically do there? Well, you know, that's been going on since 2006. I started out on RBN, Republic Broadcasting, which is run by this character named John Statmiller, who started the Michigan Militia, which gives you a sense of oh the kind of guy he is. Uh, he's, yeah. he's a very intense character um, and a little kind of infamous in alternative media circles. Uh, you know, he, he has been known to play with guns and things like that. You know, he's, he's quite a guy. Anyway, so I, I got my start with him, and, and the first person he put me on with when he offered me a, a substitute slot for Jim Fetzer's show was this guy, John Kaminsky, who's just, he, he was a former mainstream journalist who I think just got totally fed up with the Zionists running the media. And then he went crazy in a well, maybe just went a little extreme and became rabidly anti-Jewish. And you know, I didn't know anything really about this guy. 
So, you know, I, I did a quick study on him before I did the show. And, you know, we talked the first hour agreeing about 9-11 and things like that. And then the second hour I brought up, you know, John, some of the things you say about Jewish people are a little extreme. And he just unloaded with this, you know, incredible torrent of invective. And, and I, then in the break, John uh, Stadmiller came on and said, you know, if, if you want to throw this guy off, you could, it wouldn't bother me. You know, he said, I'm afraid the ADL is going to get on my butt. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I traded insults with Kaminsky for a while and then threw him off the air. <laughs> that was my introduction to alternative radio. Oh, and it's been, uh, it's been crazy and, and fun ever since. And um, I, I really do try to bring on people that, are, uh, you know, telling important truths that are totally, you know, just not there in the mainstream, you know, the more important it is and the more censored it is, the more I want to cover it. So was it, was it nine eleven for you that kind of, like you were saying, you had, you had one kind of, uh, life path planned for yourself and it kind of did a one eighty on you. Was it, is nine eleven what's, what stirred the pot? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been for that, I probably would be, you know, stuck in some university. Uh, I guess by now I'd probably have tenure. Um, and, you know, that, there would be a good side to that, I suppose. But, yeah, it was it was just, you know, 9-11 was going too far. I mean, I was, I was already, you know, I, I'm not stupid. I mean, I knew that JFK was an inside job from, you know, junior high school. Uh, and I knew that the U.S. government is one of the world's biggest criminals, uh, you know, biggest terrorist organization that's killed uh, – probably tens of millions of people and these evil undeclared unconstitutional wars. I mean, I knew all that stuff, yeah. but you know, I, I did my year of activism fighting for the nuclear freeze back in 1985 or something, 84. And, uh, I hadn't really planned on getting back into it in a big way, but 11, that was just too much. They really went too far, you know, just blowing up those three skyscrapers in broad daylight like that and lying through their teeth about it in that just over the top, you know, extreme way. And, you know, triggering what's, you know, they, it's intended to be at least a hundred year, you know, genocidal war on Muslims. And this is, uh, this is unacceptable, you know? So I just couldn't see myself sticking my head in the sand for 10 years, trying to get tenure and, and towing the line and, you know, curbing my tongue like you have to in the university. So I started doing teach-ins on nine 11 and, uh, I did, you know, I wasn't sure they were necessarily going to kill my career for it. In fact, <laughs> you know, just doing teach-ins didn't kill my career at all. I was still teaching it at the University of Wisconsin, and I had an offer, even while I was doing these 9-11 teach-ins, uh, from the University of California to do a, a postdoc that was sponsored by the Ford Foundation, and it would have basically paid me 60000 bucks to sit there and write whatever I wanted to write. I was supposed to do some ethnography studying African Muslim immigrants. And so I almost took that. In fact, I did accept it. And then later I, I got pissed off at the Ford foundation, which was supplying the money for it. The Ford foundation, it turns out is a big CIA money conduit. And when they, uh, you know, their money was propping up uh, eight, uh, Amy Goodman and her nine 11 nonsense. And, you know, when they brought on David Ray Griffin and then ambushed him with Chip Berlay He's a professional anti-conspiracy guy uh, and just did a really deceptive show on Democracy Now. That pissed me off so much. You know, she's taken all this money from Ford Foundation that's basically telling you it was officially to report on the aftermath of 9-11. It was all hush money saying, you know, uh, Amy, you know, just support this genocidal official story. Right. right. And so she did. So that this whole thing just pissed me off so much. I said, forget it. You know, I, I turned down that 
Ford Foundation thing, which was the best thing that anybody in my program at Wisconsin had ever been offered out of graduate school. I stupidly turned that down and just hung around Madison teaching um, Islam, Arabic, uh, and uh, what else? Folklore. And and so while I was teaching these classes, I was doing teach-ins on the mall on 9-11. And it was no problem. You know, I didn't really bring 9-11 into my classes very much. I think I did like a little tiny bit of it in folklore. We did like a a unit on, you know, urban legends and conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And of course, I taught it in a slightly subversive way, but, you know, I wasn't beating the drums or anything. I had no problem. You know, I had, I had the, son, the grandson of the most famous Republican governor in, in Wisconsin, Lee Dreyfus. His grandson was in my folklore class, went through the 9-11 unit, had no problem with it, you know. Uh, so everything was cool. But then in 2006, I guess that was when the, uh, you know, Carl Rove and Lynn Cheney decided that it was time to push back against the professors who were, you know, joining Scholars for 9-11 Truth. They needed somebody to hold up as a bad example. So, you know, say to the other professors, hey, if you talk about 9-11, look what could happen to you. Mm-hmm. So they chose me and <laughs> a bunch of Republican state legislators uh, working for Carl Rove and Lynn Cheney, which hunted me saying I should be fired from the university. And I fought back. It became a huge sort of media circus. And uh, that's what forced me out of academia and into alternative media. So here we are. <laughs> Wow, they've created a monster. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, that's really my, my long-term goal is to make them regret that they ever went after me. <laughs> so I was actually, I was just watching a, a speech of yours uh, the other day, um, and I was wondering if you couldn't lay out for some of our listeners, it was kind of you had laid out uh, some of the major wars in American history, going back to the the war with the Spanish uh, through World War Two, and kind of the painted a picture that I had never heard before. Well, you know, you could even go back to the Boston massacre. There are people who say that, you know, Sam Adams and those guys might have sort of inflamed things in such a way as to provoke a massacre that could be used to rile up the people to fight the British. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but if you go to the Mexican war, you know, 1847, 48, then you got a fake Mexican invasion of America. It was really a U.S. invasion of Mexico. They sent the troops into Mexico, you know, started a firefight. And then they reported in the newspapers that the evil Mexicans had attacked America. And so the attack on America and the newspaper headlines led to this war of aggression in which the U.S. seized almost half of Mexico's territory, which is pretty much everything west of the Mississippi. and then the same kind of thing happened again with the Spanish-American War. Uh, that was when you know, Hearst said, you give me the pictures, I'll give you the war to his correspondent. And the correspondent said, oh, there's, there's nothing happening here. And Hearst said, just you wait. And sure enough, the battleship Maine blows up in Havana Harbor mm-hmm. and they blame the Spanish. One thing all, every historian agrees on today is that it was not the Spanish that blew up the battleship Maine. Uh, they, you know, they're usually too shy to say it was probably a false flag. So they say, well, maybe it was an accident or something, you know, but it wasn't the Spanish that intentionally did that because, you know, the Spanish were weak and the U.S. coveted Spain's colonies. So it was one of those situations where, you know, the powers that be have to make it look like we're being attacked in order to launch their war of aggression. Because Mm -hmm. you go to the American people and you say, let's have a war of aggression. Let's go steal somebody else's land and resources. American people say, eh, you know, we can think of something better to do with our taxpayers' money. But if you say, oh, these evil foreigners are attacking us, mm-hmm. then everybody panics and falls into line. 
So they did that, and they stole these very valuable colonies from Spain, especially the Philippines. And uh, this is once again, in, in, for you know, run up to the U.S. involvement in World War One, the Lusitania was packed with passengers and armaments. And the Germans had already warned the U.S. that if it kept sending armaments to the British, uh, the German U-boats were going to sink them. And so they put the passengers and the armaments on the ship and sent it straight into a fleet of U-boats with predictable consequences. Uh, and it, there's some evidence that there was even sort of manipulation of the path of the ship to make sure it got sunk. Yeah. And so that inflamed public opinion and uh, brought the, you know, created the climate that led the U.S. to enter World War One on behalf of Zionism, because that what that was really all about was that the Rothschild family uh, made a deal with the British in the middle of World War One. You know, when the British were about to surrender, or you know, rather to, to have a truce, the Rothschilds said, don't, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't have peace yet, you know, because we can win the war for you. <laughs> uh, all you have to do is give us Palestine. And the British did that. So, okay, mm-hmm. here's the Balfour Declaration, uh, Jewish homeland in Palestine, it's all yours. The Rothschilds then used their money assets to, you know, to break Germany's uh, credit. They extended credit to the British, and then most importantly, they brought the U.S. into the war by mobilizing their control over the U.S. media and political system. Hmm. So that was uh, that's how the U.S. got into World War One, which is a war that no history professor could possibly explain why America had any business fighting it, uh, or even why anybody did, for that matter. And that's because they're afraid to talk about the Zionists. Then in World War Two, uh, we had Pearl Harbor. And that was the result of an eight-point plan drafted by Roosevelt's people and with Churchill behind it to make sure that the Japanese, quote-unquote, fired the first shot. It's very important that Japan must be seen to have fired the first shot, says Roosevelt. And so they put into place an eight-point plan. They cut off Japan's oil and basically forced Japan to attack. Japan has no no other choice. <clears throat> and then the uh, U.S. And British had broken the code. They knew when the attack was coming. And rather than defending anybody, they just let the Japanese slaughter over 2,000 Americans in order to inflame public opinion and bring the U.S. into the war. At that time, it was like 85 percent polls saying, no, no, we don't want to go to war. Uh, So it's over and over and over Uh, with Korea. There was, you know, they 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 specifically drew a line and said, everything on this side of the line will defend everything on that side. We won't. Korea was on the side that we won't. <laughs> so it was like an invitation, you know, like, Hey, come on, communists, go ahead, you know, invade, invade South Korea, reunify Korea. And then <clears throat> boom, uh, once that happens, the media goes into action and says evil communists invade South Korea, uh, Vietnam. We had the Gulf of Tonkin rev- uh, incident, which led to the resolution that brought us into Vietnam in a big way. And once again, that never happened. The newspaper headlines screamed out, you know, evil North Vietnamese attack uh, American boat. It d- didn't happen. It was just a, uh, you know, a manufactured incident that was designed to inflame public opinion and bring us to war. Um, and, it, you know, in 62, shortly before that, there had been a plan to actually murder hundreds of Americans in false flight terror attacks blamed on Cuba to go to war with Cuba. It was called Operation Northwoods. Every member of the Joint Chiefs signed off on this plan to, to mur- mass murder Americans, and uh, nobody would know about it except for one copy of that survived. It was McNamara's copy. Um, and fast forward to uh, to Iraq War One. Um, the Bush family public relations firm Hill and Knowlton produced uh, this nurse Nasira, who was supposedly a nurse in a Kuwaiti hospital who'd witnessed evil Iraqi soldiers bashing babies to death on the cold hard floor. And uh, once again, this was complete BS. 
Turns out that Nurse Nasira was really the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter who was coached in her lines by Hill and Knowlton, the PR firm. Uh, <laughs> so we go to war that night, and that was what brought us to war. If it hadn't been for that testimony that brought tears to the eyes of Congress and the American people, there would have been no Iraq War One. And then uh, with so with 9-11, if, if 9-11 really was a foreign attack, you know, this would be the first time in history. <laughs> you know? uh, it would be a real anomaly. But guess what? It wasn't. It was just the same old, same old. So some of these things are actually accepted as, as false flags in a way, even by the mainstream. Yet even though there's that acknowledgement there at, a, at some level, it still doesn't seem to change anything or, or wake anybody up. I mean, I guess people are waking up all the time, but I'm talking about kind of the mainstream. Well, yeah, I think it's almost accepted, you know, by the uh, power elite that there's kind of a double speak that goes on. You know, they speak with one voice to those in the know with little nods and winks and another voice to the people who they assume are really dumb sheep who have to be manipulated and herded. Uh, and it's Leo Strauss who founded neoconservatism really put a huge emphasis on this and, you know, led to his disciples, people like Wolfowitz, Pearl, and, and those guys to be really extreme in the way they, they use doublespeak to communicate. Um, in fact, you know, Leo Strauss's whole theory uh, of uh, classical writing and philosophy is that all of the great philosophers have always uh, written in this doublespeak. You know, they, according to Leo Strauss, the truth is true to, too destructive and critical reason is too, too destructive to be allowed to fall into the hands of the masses. So truth and the critical reason that can find it uh, must be reserved as the province of an elite. And this elite is going to be a very ruthless elite that's going to you know, believe that it has the power and capacity to do whatever it wants to preserve its own power. You know, Strauss said the only natural right is the natural right of the strong to uh, rule the weak. And to do that, they should invent these myths, these big lies to manipulate the masses, and they should communicate in doublespeak. You know, everything they say should have a surface level to brainwash the masses and a hidden level to wink at the other members of this ruthless elite uh, so they know what you're doing. And I think in, in framing this sick, satanic philosophy, Strauss, in a way, was really just commenting on something that really does go on. And, you know, I, I think for, you know, for example, there's this book by Roberta Wolstetter that's called Pearl Harbor. Uh, I think it's day of decision or something. Uh, and this book, you know, by the, the wife of Albert Wolstetter, who was Paul Wolfowitz's mentor, well, along with Strauss, Strauss and Wolstetter were both these, you know, arch Zionist, uh, neocon, uh, geniuses who mentored Wolfowitz. And, and so this book by Wolfstetter's wife uh, on Pearl Harbor is written at this double level. You know, if a normal American reads this book, mm -hmm. they are going to get the message that Pearl Harbor was this perfidious Japanese surprise attack that we didn't know was coming. But if you're hip to the neocon doublespeak, you can see that the way she writes and uses words and puts in a little word here that doesn't quite belong and nods and winks at you, she knows that it was a setup hmm. and she approves of it. And that is the attitude of the neocons. They all essentially understand that uh, Pearl Harbor was manufactured by the U.S. Uh, and they approve of it because they're all, well, they're mo almost all radical Jewish Zionists who for, I think, pretty good reasons, hate Hitler, 
And the U.S. was never going to get into that war against Hitler um, unless that kind of provocation were engineered. Hitler wasn't going to attack the U.S. So the only way to get into World War II was to do something like this. Hmm. And so the neocons approve of this. You know, for them, Hitler was the ultimate evil. Uh, the U.S. had to be brought into that war. So Roosevelt and Churchill were doing a wonderful thing to manufacture this big lie to get the people to go to war. And that's their whole philosophy is the people are stupid sheep that have to be you know, led by the nose to do the things that the elite uh, knows they should do. So when you talk about 9-11, when you first got involved in this and you changed your path um, and you, and you mentioned, you know, you're getting sick of the lies and the, and the people lying. So I guess that would be the mainstream media and, and your government. But how, I wonder how many people know that they're lying or how many people are just stuck in that paradigm thinking and believing uh, the, the lie from the higher level, right? Like how intentional is all this? Do you think? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Orwell's 1984 when, you know, these extreme lies are out there and it, they're fairly widely accepted. You know, I mean, I think belief in the official story of 9-11 is kind of the proverbial mile wide and inch deep, although I don't think it's anywhere near a mile wide. It's maybe, you know, half a mile wide. Yeah. But that if you, if you sit down and talk with people about it, you know, you'll get all kinds of different reactions according to the way the wind's blowing and the mood that they're in and, you know, what yeah, kind of yeah. person they are. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I don't sense that, you know, it's, it's really, you know, people really strongly believe it, you know, except for this, you know, rabid minority. Um, when I was being witch hunted, the Capital Times newspaper sent out a reporter uh, to go around to all the public places in Madison, Wisconsin and get people's take on this. And apparently he was expecting that most of them would say, wow, this professor must be a real kook to think 9-11 was an inside job. But what he found was that, you know, person after person after person said the same thing, which is a, eh, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, Bush. You know? <laughs> and so he, he was pretty surprised by that. <laughs> um, but I wasn't really because like, you know, every other professor at Madison that I ever talked to about it, you know, pretty much they all had the same reaction, which was, yeah, you know, that really could be, it kind of looks that way. I don't want to look into it because it might be true. So it's almost like the, the, the military industrial complex has almost become like a little, a little war machine for the, for the, you know, super rich to, to basically keep getting what they want as far back as the, as far back as we had major conflicts. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of always been that way, really. You know, I wrote an essay called twilight of the psychopaths, which is very, you know, exaggerated uh, in a way. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a rant. You know, every now and then I like to let loose with one of these rants. And, <laughs> and this one says that, you know, the psychopaths must have founded civilization. You know, what it, you know, what Gandhi says, you know, when asked about Western civilization, he said, oh, that would be a good idea. <laughs> in fact, uh, civilization itself may have been created really by these, you know, psychopaths who figured out, how to brainwash people into becoming uh, really, you know, killers and thieves. And, you know, they and their goons could go around and round up the surplus grain from the farmers, maybe, you know, kill the farmers, use whatever violence they needed to use, get the grain, store it, and use it to hire even more thugs. And then the next year, they could extend the reach of their so-called taxation. <laughs> and so that's pretty, you know, that's probably how civilization started. So pretty soon they've got this huge tower full of grain and people are building houses around. It becomes a city. 
and the uh, the psychopath in chief is the you know Hammurabi or you know whatever he wants to call himself, and it's it's kind of been that way ever since I think, uh, because oh, that's really what civilization began as as, as this you know, sort of organized pillage, uh, and in a way it still is, and so the people who run it are the most ruthless people and the greediest people who want to climb to the top of this pyramid of pillage. But their problem is that mass literacy uh, is, I mean, people have always been fighting back against it, but now they can organize better and they can become more aware and have better uh, means of fighting back thanks to mass literacy and communication technology. So in this yeah. rant, I was saying this is a, it's worth the end of the era of uh, psychopath rule. And, and I hope I was right. Yeah. I was just going to mention that until the internet came along and now, uh, you know, everything is kind of changing. <clears throat> At least more people are, are kind of waking up to other possibilities of our history and, and uh, our path to the future. So how, how about you in the last eight years or decade since you've been doing this, you must have seen a lot of changes in uh, <clears throat> awareness or uh, how people talk about it or the media. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Well, yeah, I think, you know, when I got involved in the 9-11 Truth Movement, that was the beginning of 2004. And at that time, there was still uh, a real uh, strong fear factor. You know, when people brought up 9-11 in sort of any kind of off-color way, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people would freak out. Yeah. You know, you could just see the fear coming into their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's been slowly diminishing with time. Uh, and so that's one factor. And, you know, in a way that works, it cuts in two ways. One is that when you turn somebody around at, when there's that much fear, then sometimes they become kind of, you know, intense and somebody who never would have been an activist becomes an activist. You know, you turn somebody inside out on this when they're still emotionally wound up about it. And you can turn somebody from, you know, from a, a fascist into a, a truth activist. Um, and now that it's not so intense, uh, it's a little less likely that when somebody opens their eyes to this, they're immediately going to devote their whole life to getting the word out. So in that sense, it's slowed down a little bit. Um, but I, I do think that we've won the battle in one sense, which is that of, you know, the, the people who were aware enough to have really you know, checked it out and looked at it and thought about it and who know something about the controversy, practically all of them are truthers. I mean, there are very few people who've really, you know, taken a hard look at it uh, and agreed with the official story. Hmm. So I, I think we have most of the, the real critical thinkers on our side already. And it's, you know, so we're going to end up with a, you know, sort of a fight between these neocon strategic genius psychopaths and whoever they're still, they've still got under control, mostly, you know, relatively stupid people. <laughs> and then all the, you know, the people capable of thinking for themselves are going to be on the other side of the fight. And frankly, you know, if I'm going to fight a war, I want to be on the side that's got a lot of people that can think for themselves. You know, I think we have a pretty good shot at winning this thing in the yeah. long term. Yeah, and I guess you've also seen the mainstream use the momentum and, and turn it into conspiracy or, or turn the label of conspiracy on its head uh, and, and push back that way a bit. Well, all they can do is use character assassination and ad hominem attacks trying to kill the messenger. Because the message itself is pretty irrefutable. You know, anybody with two synapses firing can look at Bob Bowman's three-minute video called uh, WTC7, The Smoking Gun. 
Google that if you haven't seen it yet. WTC7, The Smoking Gun. <laughs> it's a three-minute video. You can watch Building 7 coming down at you know, free fall acceleration for a third of the way and you know, very close to it for the whole way. Um, and you can see Larry Silverstein, the uh, guy who bought the World Trade Center you know, a couple of months before this disaster happened, double the insurance on these asbestos-ridden, doomed buildings, these white elephants, you know, and then confessed to having pulled or demolished Building 7 on camera. You know, you see three minutes of that, and then, you know, you, know, you see the BBC report this obvious implosion of Building 7 20 minutes before it happened. And anybody with two synapses firing can see, okay, yeah, okay, the truth is, it was like the truth is right. But it's, it's like three minutes. You don't even have to do a, a dissertation research project on it. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, it's a really good issue. You know, some of these other issues, like the Holocaust, for example, it's, I'm still trying to figure that one out. There's, it's, there's a lot of historical work you have to do to really be sure of anything about that. And I'm not even sure yet. Um, and there are a lot of other issues like that that, are fairly complex and the sources are, you know, filtered through how many different games of telephone you have to get back to the prime sources and what agenda do they have and so on. But with 9-11, you know, so much of this stuff is right there in video. You know, anybody with eyes can see these are demolitions. Anybody with eyes and ears can hear Silverstein confessing, you know, uh, what more do you need? Didn't uh, didn't the Rothschilds have a shipping company that fucking pulled out of their lease, like paid a huge penalty to pull out of their lease, like two weeks before? You know, I, I forget whether the is it. The, I don't know whether the Rothschilds own Zim Shipping or not. I if yeah, I, I knew that they owned a percentage of it for yeah, some reason. Well, they probably did. They own a percentage of a lot yeah, of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Zim Shipping was an Israeli-owned shipping company that broke its lease to move out of the trade center the week before 9-11. And they, they had a big, you know, big uh, bunch of the trade center and they lost a ton of money to move out. And that looks pretty bad. There was also uh, the Odaigo instant messaging forewarnings in, in the Hebrew language that went out on the morning of 9-11 saying, don't go to work in lower Manhattan. And that was reported in Haaretz, which is Israel's best newspaper. So can we, let's actually, let's rewind it a, just a bit here and, Let's um since we're we're jumping into nine eleven here, can we uh for maybe I don't think we'd have a ton of listeners, but for, for some listeners who really haven't heard anything, could you kinda give us a run a quick rundown of uh why nine eleven is obviously uh bull? Right. Well the first thing again is is you know, the easy way to get into this and to see that it's very you know, to convince yourself in three minutes that there's really a huge problem here is, is to look at those building seven issues. 
you know, it's it's just such an obvious controlled demolition. It was the third building, uh, the third skyscraper that came down at near freefall acceleration on 9-11. Later on in the day, right? Yeah, like yeah, six it, it hours came, later. Yeah, it came down at 520 something in the afternoon, uh, which was, you know, the, the two towers came down at roughly uh, like nine nine fifty in the morning and then like what um 10 uh 10 20 or something in the morning uh but then it wasn't until uh, 5 20 or so in the afternoon that building seven came down and the problem with the building seven thing is like with the towers they could quote unquote plausibly pretend that these buildings had somehow quote unquote collapsed due to some combination of, you know, jet fuel fires and office fires and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the jet metal from the jet stripping off some of the fireproofing and all this nonsense. Uh, but, you know, it's just not 100% instantly obvious that these are demolitions mm-hmm. unless, you know, unless you're <laughs> pretty, you know, if you know something about high-rise architecture and you know something about physics, you can look at it and say, these, you know, there's something really wrong here. In fact, a lot of people, even without that, can look at these towers and, and see there's a problem and see that they're exploding. But they don't look like normal controlled demolitions either. You know, they look like something that's never been seen before. So, oh, well, it's something that's never been seen before. You know, it's, it's easy to just kind of block that out and imagine that it must be some you know, weird thing that happened because of the airplanes. Um, but with Building 7, this is just an obvious classic controlled demolition. There's no question about it. You know, the people that work the hardest to try and show that it just fell down the way the government said, tear their hair out and end up admitting they can't do it. Like Frank Greening was the man who was most cited by the debunkers for years. Greening is a Canadian science scientist who uh, was, you know, he's, he's tried to hold up the government's account of what happened to the towers. And he's become skeptical even of that. But now, you know. Even he comes right out and says, you know, this government is just putting out complete nonsense about Building 7 and essentially admitting it's an obvious controlled demolition. So you look at Building 7 first, you see, wait a minute, okay, they they did this controlled demolition, they lied about it, uh, they covered it up. Um, Once you see that Building 7 is definitely a controlled demolition, then you go back and look a little more closely at the towers and you can see that they're exploding. They're not just falling. Uh, They're blowing up and these huge, you know, hundred ton steel structural elements are blasting upwards and outwards and flying 500 feet and impaling themselves in neighboring buildings. Gravity doesn't do that. And you can see that they're uh, being pulverized. Uh, Most of what's in them is being turned into gravel and, and very fine dust and floating down very slowly, you know, rather than, you know, crunching down as, as concrete pieces. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with, uh, with those two. So you see that and say, oh, my goodness, okay, these three buildings are obvious controlled demolitions. We have all kinds of eyewitness testimony to that effect. Hundreds of first responders and firemen and policemen on radios uh, talking about these obvious explosions that were going off as these things were being blown up. Um, and, you know, pools of molten steel. Uh, fires from kerosene, which is what jet fuel is, and office paper do not melt steel. They don't even get close to it. Uh, Yet there were pools of molten steel that were still around uh, weeks after these demolitions. And and you can kind of go on like that for a long time. So essentially, you establish pretty easily that these three skyscrapers in New York were taken down in controlled demolitions, destroyed deliberately um, in such a way that they wouldn't topple over and and wipe out neighboring buildings. Mm So once you see that, then you say, okay, if that's the case, 
then what's the story with these planes that, you know, if it wasn't the planes that brought the buildings down, you know, what, what was the role of these planes? Well, it, once you admit that these are demolitions, you have to notice that these are extremely sophisticated, high-tech demolitions. The towers were deceptive demolitions designed to make it look like they might have, you know, collapsed due to structural damage and fire. And in order to do these kinds of demolitions, uh, you know, this was the billion, these were billion dollar projects, very, very high tech. Um, and they would have invested incredible amounts of work into preparing the demolitions and into preparing the rest of this operation. Given that, there is no way that they would have just allowed these quote unquote hijackers, you know, the best pilots of which could not, were so incompetent, they couldn't even solo in a Cessna training aircraft. And they wouldn't just say, oh, we're going to let these guys take over planes and hit these targets. And then we're going to bring down these buildings and blame it on the planes. Mm. Obviously they wouldn't do that because, you know, even if there was a one in a hundred chance that planes wouldn't hit buildings, right. If the planes aren't going to hit the buildings, you can't do the demolitions. Mm. So you have to be a hundred percent sure that the, that quote unquote planes are going to hit buildings. So, so obviously that was a setup, whatever they did to make it look like there were hijackings and plane crashes. Those were not hijackings and plane crashes. You know, most likely they probably just flew some kind of drones into these targets. Uh, by remote control, because you, you couldn't trust a human pilot to do it. You know, you couldn't be a hundred percent sure that the human pilot was going to hit these. You know, the world's best pilots uh, can't hit the towers at the speeds these planes were supposedly going. In fact, the, the speeds that you see on the video were probably way beyond the capacity of the aircraft. You know, the, build, the South Tower was hit at almost six hundred miles an hour, and probably this plane would have broken apart at five hundred miles an hour at sea level. They just can't go that fast. It, it, the engines probably couldn't have pushed it that fast either. So the whatever happened, it was not like jetliners hijacked by guys who couldn't fly Cessnas, which is what the government tells us. Uh, so you, you establish that. And then you go and look at the Pentagon, and there's no evidence whatsoever that any big airliner hit the Pentagon, and all kinds of evidence that it didn't. And then you go look at Shanksville, where there was supposedly an airliner crash, and there's just this little 15-foot hole in the ground with a couple of little pieces of scrap metal that didn't even come from an airplane lying there. And the government tells us that plane just buried us in the soft, buried itself in the soft ground. Mm -hmm. They also claim that they dug out the passengers and did DNA tests on the passengers and they tested all the passengers except for the hijackers. Um, That's what they say, but there's not one shred of evidence that they ever disinterred any airplane at Shanksville. There's, you know, wouldn't they have taken pictures of this? I mean, wouldn't somebody who did it talk about it? There's no, it never happened. So, so there's this 15, a 15 foot hole in the ground where they claim that a jetliner just disappeared into soft coal mining ground, just disappeared into the ground, left no trace except for a little 15 foot, you know, five foot deep hole. <laughs> and then, you know, and then we're just told that, oh yeah, well, at some later date, they somehow went and disinterred these people and DNA tested them without the slightest record of any kind of having ever done this. It's ridiculous. I mean, and, the, and every aspect of this story is completely ludicrous and unsupported by any real evidence. You know, the notion that there were even these guys, these hijackers were even on the planes. There's not a shred of evidence that any of these hijackers were on any of these planes. So you know, not we, one shred. But no. when we talk about Building 7, um, I remember seeing the debunking argument after that, because I'd watched some of the documentaries a few years back. And um, so what did the debunkers say about Building 7? Because I remember, I'm, I wasn't convinced, but they definitely um, put up a pretty 
somewhat convincing argument. I mean, I, so can you? Re- Not anymore. No, eh? <laughs> so to. has it changed like over the last yeah, what, few years? Oh yeah, it's totally. But well, what happened was that you know, see, they just make stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's a part of the brain that goes into action defending any deeply held beliefs yeah. uh, and it just makes people say whatever could possibly come out of their mouths that would you know sound like it was defending that belief and so that's what we had with building seven for a while oh there was a diesel generator in the basement and so, so you know these are people with no knowledge of the actual setup in building seven no knowledge of what actually happened they never really studied it they just make this stuff up you know counterpunch did this uh this you know some people who should know better uh uh alexander uh coburn you know famously you know did this huge rant about how it was obviously the diesel generators in the basements big diesel fire since there was a big diesel fire somehow that's going to cause this building to magically fall down in perfectly symmetrical, you know, like an elevator yeah, into the yeah. ground at free fall acceleration. <laughs> okay. Uh, but that was the best they could do was, right. you know, diesel fire in the basements. Well, then when the government finally came out with its explanation, it admitted what every serious person, namely the nine 11 truthers had been saying, which was that the diesel, there were no diesel fires. This, that had nothing to do with it. They came up with a, a story that is so, ridiculous that you know people like frank greening who has been just desperate to find any way he can to possibly come up with the most far-fetched scientific hypothesis to support you know any of these official stories of these three buildings throws up his hands and says these people are insane (laughs) you know they they the government you know nist gave us this story of quote-unquote thermal expansion you know they say that there, there was one particular beam and there's this phenomenon called thermal expansion, which has never been seen before in history, never been observed anywhere on the planet at any time. But this phenomenon suddenly appeared miraculously out of nowhere on 9-11. Because of a but, fire in the top of the building or whatever? Yeah, because yeah. of because of fires. Yeah. And so it, this beam expanded. And when the beam expanded, it dislodged you know, another beam. And it was pretty much like a Rube Goldberg contraction or contraction or or contraption or like the dominoes falling or something. And so all of these different, you know, beams uh, basically dislodge each other and then the whole thing just falls straight down. And, and it's, it's so ridiculous that now no, there's nobody who seriously defends it anymore. And greening, you know, came on my radio show and just, what several months ago Uh and, you know, all but said, yeah, okay, you guys are right about building seven. Wow. Wow. So yeah, it uh, says says here that uh, Zim shipping is owned half by the state of Israel and half by the Rothschilds. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, that pretty much means all Perfect by the Rothschilds. <laughs> yeah. State of Israel is the Rothschilds. <laughs> so, so um, being in the sort of in the truth or movement and all, I I wonder how you guys were able to deal with all the different competing theories of your own, right? Like it must have been a challenge in a way because there's different factions of the truther movement like you've got the directed energy weapons like the dustification of the buildings and then the you know controlled demolition the planes are like uh holograms i mean how do you guys was that challenging teasing through all those types of theories well yeah you know i think and i think some of those disputes are sort of you know they, they function as traps to lure the unwary into being less than fully productive you know, because the kind of people who see through this stuff 
sometimes are kind of geeks, you know, like with the Kennedy assassination, people who really got into every aspect of the single bullet theory, and, you know, could, could describe every little twist and turn that the magic bullet made as it, you know, went through, you know, Kennedy and Connolly, was it five times, you know, made six, you know, perpendicular turns in the air as it did. So, you know, and, and could give you every last logistical reason why obviously there were multiple shooters in Dealey Plaza, you know, well, those kind of people, became notorious as JFK geeks and, you know, certain kinds of people, you know, try to avoid them at parties. You know, like, oh, you guys are too geeky for us. You know, go, go talk shop, uh, conspiracy talk somewhere else. And so with 9-11, you know, that, that happens where, you know, people get fascinated by this and they try to figure, well, how in the heck did they simulate these airliner crashes? I think we all, every sensible person in the 9-11 truth movement agrees that these were simulated, you know, hijackings and plane crashes. There were no hijackings and plane crashes. Something was done to simulate a hijacking and plane crash. Now, how did they do it? Did they just fly a 757 into, or 767 into the towers, 757 into the Pentagon? Um, doesn't look like it because a 767 wouldn't go that fast. Um, well, then what did they do? Did they dress up some kind of military plane as a 767 and, mm-hmm it in there at 600 miles an hour or did they you know cloak a cruise missile in a hologram as, as some people say or did they just you know blow up the building and and you know fake it on video and assume that people would have screen memories which people do when they see it on tv if you're in new york and you see on tv that this happens you're very likely to re- you know at least some people are going to remember having actually seen it in real life so if you just put this on tv uh, you would be absolutely certain that of the 10 million people in New York, a sizable number would, quote unquote, remember. They would claim to remember having actually seen a plane hitting a building. And so there are people who, who you know, take all of these different approaches. Uh, and I don't know. I, I, I mean, the important thing to me is that it's just, you know, we've proven that this was a military operation. It wasn't hijackers. Almost certainly wasn't a normal 767. I mean, isn't that enough? Now let's get these guys in and, and you know waterboard them and find out how they did it, right? <laughs> but uh, but some people just really get into the arcane details of uh, of how it was done, and sometimes that can be very divisive and kind of frustrating. You know, when you start getting on their chain email lists. Yeah, and it, and really, it shouldn't even matter. Like the you're missing the big picture is that somebody did it or is willing yeah. to take those kind of, of steps. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think more important really than all the details of how it was done is why it was done. And, you know, what, what's the real meaning of this in history? And, you know, that's a fascinating topic. I mean, you can look at nine 11 as a, uh, a mass human sacrifice designed to launch war. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole sort of esoteric Western tradition of, uh, of human sacrifice. There's a, an analysis of sacrifice by Rene Girard, one of our greatest philosophers. Um, I read, I read somewhere that Afghanistan and Iraq were two, the two only countries that don't add, didn't have um, Rothschild owned banks in them. Is there any yeah. truth to that? You know, uh, well, Afghanistan, I'm sure didn't. And actually Iraq probably didn't either, but I don't think, I don't think Iran's bank is Rothschild owned. I don't think Gaddafi, was Rothschild owned, although I think he was starting to hobnob with them a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure it was quite that simple. Uh, I understand that there are those who say that Japan's postal bank is the biggest non-Rothschild bank in the world. And there's, you know, people speculate about 
the Fukushima disaster having been uh, payback for their refusing to sell their postal bank to the Rothschilds and the rest of the international you know, bankster interests. Uh, there was a threat made to attack Japan with an earthquake weapon that was revealed by, was it, it wasn't the prime minister, one of the top uh, Japanese <laughs> leaders in December of that year. And then Fukushima hit in the spring. Wow. The people who think that that might be uh, some kind of earthquake weapon, but I don't know. But with, uh, I think it's, it, it's probably also a geostrategic thing. Uh, we learned from General Wesley Clark that uh, shortly after 9-11, he learned that the real plan was to uh, attack uh, and do regime change in seven countries in five years. And the seven countries were all uh, opponents of Israel, you know, starting with Iraq and going through uh, Libya, uh, Sudan, uh, Lebanon, Syria, um, and uh, what did I miss? I don't know, ending, ending in Iran, was that was the big kahuna. Oh, they were going to get Sudan and Somalia as well. And, and so if you look at the seven countries that 9-11 was intended to take out, They've really trashed most of them. They just utterly trashed Iraq. It's it's a disaster area full of DU. Um, they destroyed Libya. Uh, they uh, destroyed Sudan and broke it into two countries. They you know they they stole all the resources of Sudan by breaking it off and creating an Israeli ruled so called South Sudan. Um, they have destabilized Lebanon. They're currently in the process of destroying Syria. So that whole seven countries in five years plan that General Wesley Clark revealed, uh, I think, was probably a big part of the motivation for 9-11. Uh, and so that means it was really the Israelis, and of course the Rothschilds are the Israelis, who wanted to use the U.S. military to destroy the uh, opponents of Israel. And I think they not only intended to do those seven countries in the five years, now it's of course taken longer than five years, but they also wanted to launch a 100 years war uh, against the enemies of Israel. And essentially the whole Islamic world is an enemy of Israel because, you know, what is Israel? It's occupied Palestine. Palestine has been Muslim administered Holy Land ever since Islam existed. It's, you know, it's like you know, occupying Palestine. That's it's like if the Muslims went and invaded and occupied the Vatican, you know, Rome and ethnically cleansed and murdered the people of Italy. It would not be very popular among Christians, and Christians would obviously be the enemy of that, you know, occupation state in Italy. Well, that's what uh, you know. What's happening with the Zionist occupied Palestine is, you know, it's never going to be accepted by the world's two billion Muslims. So it's a recipe for eternal war. And uh, I think 9/11 was really designed to make the whole West uh, an accomplice in uh, Israel's war against Islam. So I'm, oh, that's just fascinating. I'm, I'm also fascinated by what we're going to think the in the CIA, future. The CIA gets the, uh, the poppy fields to keep their mouth shut. Oh yeah. Everybody makes money off it, of course. So they're, they're, everybody's making money. But I think the, the big strategic reason is, is that it's to, you know, create Islam as the new enemy to replace the cold war communist enemy and the big beneficiary is uh, Zionism. Hmm. A lot of money to be made. War is a pretty profitable uh, industry. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's the parasite. It's a parasite industry, just like banking. You know. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to really produce anything. You know, yeah. if you're in, you can sell gold-plated toilet seats. You know, you get all the money you want from the taxpayers. And likewise, in banking, you've got compound interest, which just automatically, mathematically, brings more and more of the money in the system into your own hands. And yeah, creating so banking, it out of thin air. Yeah. 
That's right. The banking and, and the military industrial complex are the two great parasites, and they use all this money that they suck up to uh, impose their power on the rest of us. You can add the farm pharmaceutical industry in there too. Make it three. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe they're starting to rule <laughs> rule through pharmaceuticals for all I know. So, uh, what do you think? Looking back on this in twenty years, like I'm fascinated by what what we're gonna see uh, looking back in history, like twenty years or thirty years after nine eleven. But you being so involved in this, how long do you think it's gonna take? Now that we're we have so much momentum in a way, um, to to this sort of being acknowledged as, like, does there have to be a massive collapse before that happens? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think a collapse might end up triggering uh, a sort of a glasnost to perestroika moment when we can face the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at, yeah. Yeah, you know, it happened in Argentina. For a while, Argentina was under the thumbs of fascist generals, and it wasn't until they lost the war in the Falkland Islands and the Argentine economy crashed that people got fed up and overthrew the generals. And once they had overthrown those generals, then they could expose and prosecute their war crimes. And so we're going to need that kind of regime change here. As long as we have the regime that did 9-11 in power, it is going to do what's necessary to prevent uh, any kind of uh, you know, punishment ever being really dished out for this or you know, any kind of official acknowledgement of the truth. So I think we need regime change first. I don't think, we, I don't think this regime is going to allow us to destroy it by bringing out the truth. So we have to kind of do it in reverse order. And I mean, yes, telling the truth and pushing for the truth undermines the regime. And it's a huge factor in, you know, leading to the point when we're going to have that regime change that will allow us to get the truth out. But we need to think of it that way. We need to think of this as we need to overthrow this whole regime, you know, and, and 9-11 truth is one part of overthrowing it, but it won't ever be universally acknowledged until we have overthrown it. So what's going to happen? How are, you know, what, what will happen that will allow uh, a regime change here? Well, Collapse is quite likely. You know, you the petrodollar is really shaky, and you know, petrodollar empire is really what's propping up this whole you know, imperial power system. And that is that you now the Saudis allow the banksters to control the price of oil, and they uh, force countries to buy oil in U.S. dollars, which means that whoever prints the U.S. dollars can command the labor of everybody around the world, mm-hmm. and. But that's going to end. More and more countries are trading in commodities uh, and other currencies. So petrodollar empire collapses, the uh, U.S. economy collapses. And Bitcoins. I it, yeah, right. Well, I like Bitcoin. <laughs> when people recognize that, you know, there's when when the misery level reaches a certain point, you know, we get to what fifty percent unemployment, seventy percent unemployment. Uh, you know, five hundred percent inflation, five thousand percent inflation, that kind of stuff. When it hits that level. People might very well say, you know, wait a minute, you know, who pushed us into these disastrous wars uh, that we've lost? You know, let's face it. You know, everybody knows at some level we've actually lost these wars. You know, we didn't we didn't yeah. the U.S. didn't get anything out of Iraq and Afghanistan. No. We're just we're getting, you know, we're fleeing with our tails between our legs. And you know, the Taliban's going to end up in charge of Afghanistan. Well, and there's no way to win them either. Right. They're unwinnable wars, really. Well, they are. And I don't think they're really ever meant to be one. They were meant, you know, this is all just to destabilize these countries, not to do anything constructive. So, um, so, what, yeah, so, so, so at some point, people are going to wake up and say, wow, they've destroyed our country. You know, we're all out of work. We're all starving. We have nothing left to lose. And they're going to storm the gates with the pitchfork. Or, or they're going to shift the threat, right? Like I've, you know, you hear in the conspiracy circles a bit that the threat will change from terrorism to 
either the environment or, you know, extraterrestrials or whatever the next uh, unsustainable, you know, threat will be. It wouldn't surprise me. You know, they're capable of just about anything. The, the ET thing that that does still strike me as a little far fetched. Not that I doubt that there may be some, you know, ETs or something like them out there. I actually think there probably are and there probably is a cover up. But selling that as a, you know, let's unify Earth under the new world order to stop the ETs. That's a big, you know, but that's I didn't good, think that's they could, getting out there. That's pretty far <laughs> out. But yeah. I, Maybe I'm, you know, that's my generation. Maybe the newer generation has been so uh, acclimatized yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to UFOs with, you know, the X-File stuff that maybe it would work. I don't know. I mean, that could, that could almost be the only thing to save a collapse. Like if we keep going at this pace and this momentum, um, something big's got to, got to shift. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I would think so. I, but I, I don't know where it's all going to go. And I actually kind of hope we don't have a really huge violent collapse here you know just out of you know selfish concern for my family and neighbors um and the rest of the people here i mean i would i'd like to see it happen gently and uh boy i, I just uh i don't know how it will but let's do you think do you think we'll see some sort of uh significant change in our lifetime well we're seeing big changes already you know, just the rise of the alternative media uh, is already changing the world um uh, so when it all really kicks in and the sort of dominant consciousness changes and flips and suddenly it's just everybody knows that the mainstream viewpoint is is on its way out. It's, you know, the shrinking minority that's going to be gone tomorrow. You know, I don't know when that day is going to come, but uh, we're heading in that direction. Hmm. Yeah, I think it, I think it's going to happen possibly faster than we think. Yeah, these things kind of have tipping points sometimes. Yeah, and, yeah. You, know, you don't you don't know it's the tipping point until it happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't get much of a warning. Right, right. Well, listen, I, I have to hang up here and, and go do some homeschooling with my sons, but it's been great. I appreciate your uh, very interesting perspectives. I'm going to have to try and catch your show more often. So that was our chat with Kevin Barrett. What'd you think, Darren? Uh, so, no, just bugging you. Uh, it was a good one. It definitely uh, was a lot more than uh, just 9-11 stuff. That's for sure. That's uh, quite the rabbit hole. Yeah, man. When you go down to all the false flags in history. Basically all nothing but false flags. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a chat with somebody the other day and. 
when I bring up stuff like this, like that, you know, this was a false flag or that was a false flag, or even the fact that there is false flags, like it's almost harder to believe than for people than like UFOs or paranormal activity, you know, this type of conspiracy, this type of level of conspiracy. I mean, I think it's opening up, but this is hard for people to believe. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I wonder if all that shit always comes out, then who knows? I was just listening to a guy That's on THC shit. on THC today, and uh, he was talking about how he heard the tower. He heard uh, he was watching the towers before they fell because he was like 15, 20 blocks away in 9-11. And he saw or heard on the news that the towers had fallen and he looked out and they hadn't fallen yet. So this is like a guy's personal account of how something was fucking screwed up with the timing. Yeah, you hear all kinds of stuff like that. It's definitely, there's a couple good documentaries out there. So what do you think of it, though? You think there's a I lot think to this? Yeah, I think for sure there is. 100%. More so than you would have thought a couple years ago? Yeah, I think I always thought it was fucked up. It's just for a while there, it was kind of like, eh, touchy ground. You know what I mean? That's like talking about Sandy Hook conspiracies. It's like, eh. Yeah, it's touchy. It's touchy. And we just wait. We're going to get more touchy even coming up. There can't be a better way to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But thanks thanks a lot to uh, Dr. Kevin Barrett for coming on. Uh, uh, Of course, we'll link to all his stuff and his show in the show notes. Um, We got some more controversial topics coming up. Yeah, there's always some controversy in Grimerica, it seems. Um, Anyway... uh, up next, we'll be having, or we just booked Robert Chuck. He's not up yeah, next. Yeah. Actually, and I just dropped off your uh, the book for you there that I got at the Paradigm, uh, Forgotten Civilization. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll start busting into that. He'll yeah. be, I think we're doing the interview April 8th, so I got a bit of time. I'm fucking bogged down in books right now. I'm in the middle of, I'm just finishing up the Moon book. I've got, um, uh, what's his name? Greg Taylor from the Daily Grela. I'm about a third of the way through. I didn't know you were reading that. Yeah, what's it called again? The fear, don't fear. Oh there yeah, probably, there is, probably an is an afterlife. Yeah, I'm about a third of the way through that. And then I just finished Hoodwinked on audio. I'm halfway. I just finished that too. I'm halfway through Estelin's book, Trans Evolution. Which you just got the hard copy, and so you're you're reading that on Kindle, and I'm I've got the hard copy Kindle. to take home. So I've got like five days to read that. Now you got a week. A week. Yeah. Okay. It's, an, it's you, an easy read. Plus, I got to put aside the other three books I'm reading. Yeah, it's less TV, more reading. That's good for you. Good <laughs> yeah. for the brain. Yeah. Brain food. Have you listened to the Secret Empire? Uh, what is that one? That. Um, inch- oh, I still got that. That I haven't even touched. That's that, that other yet. John Perkins book, right? I got confessions on audio, so I'll be able to blast through that. But yeah, big thanks to the folks over at Booth Media for sending us uh, Daniel Estlin's book. He'll be our next guest after Jim Harold. And we're also going to have uh, Dr. Don Easterbrook on at that same day, right? Aren't we? Yeah, we're he'll doing probably. Double header, kind of? Yeah, Don will come out the week after Estherbrook, though. Or sorry, Estlin. Right, okay, cool. So, yeah, lots of good shows coming up. Yeah, 
lots of lots of gears. Uh, of course, we'll have the passport episode coming up uh, March 29th. I think we're going to schedule for probably like uh, I don't know. We'll probably just kind of be around all night, do a barbecue or something, and kind of leave it open from maybe like five to ten or four to ten p.m. or something like that. Yeah, do a call here and there, and do another. Yeah, because we're gonna have uh, so that'll be actually easier. We can leave it open and give uh, give people a a wide range of times, right? Because we're gonna do the meditation podcast that day too. So we'll be in studio for a couple hours in the early afternoon. Yeah. So basically, I think that'll be the day. It's a Saturday, March twenty ninth. Um, basically we probably make pretty well anything work. So I've got a few people lined up already, but there's still lots of room. So shoot us an email, tweet, Facebook us. Uncle Dave, let us know if you want to come on. Yeah. And of course we've got, uh, our buddy who joined us in the intro, Jared running our Facebook page now. So make sure you go over there and say hello. All right. Thanks. And if you, uh, have any feedback for us, please email at, uh, Mine's graham at grammerica.com. How's the Graham email bomb going? Did you get any yet? Uh, yeah, I got a couple. All right, guys, yeah. keep them coming. Keep the emails. <laughs> Let's keep the Graham at Grimerica email bombs going. Just don't spell it the way Darren says my name. G-R-A-H-A-M at grimerica.com. Let's see if we can get them a thousand fucking emails this week. And, of course, uh, we'll have links to everything we talked about in the intro and with uh, Kevin in the show notes, as well as all the music you heard. You got anything else before we go, Grab? No, that's it, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. I guess we won't see you, but you'll hear us.